Hey everyone, welcome to another exciting episode of the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast. Now, every week I bring on a renowned expert from around the world to teach us a little something about how to build a better business. But today I decided to take a step back and say, hey, you know what? It's not just about having the the tactical or strategic skills and how to build a better business. You also need to become a better person for you to be able to build a better business. And my guest today is someone that can help us improve, not just from a a self-help perspective, but from a whole wellness and mental well-being perspective. So my guest today is Mark Goulston. He's the co-creator and moderator of the Suicide Prevention Documentary called Stay Alive. He's a former UCLA professor of psychiatry. He's a former FBI hostage negotiation trainer, a suicide and violence prevention expert, as well as one of the world's leading experts on listening. He's the author of four books that are bestsellers, including Just Listen, Talking to Crazy, Get Out of Your Own Way, and Real Influence. In addition to his work with several organizations around the world as a corporate consultant and problem solver. Mark is the host of My Wake Up Call, which is a podcast where he interviews thought leaders and experts on several topics from around the world to figure out what was their wake-up call and what helped galvanize them and put them on the path to where they are in their life's journey. So I'm pleased to have Mark on the show today to tell us a little bit about his life, his experiences, and of course to teach us how to have better uh, mental health. So with that said, Mark, welcome to the show. Well, I'm so glad to be here, Chi, and uh, thank you for the opportunity and introducing me to your audience and trusting me to hopefully give them some value. My pleasure, Mark. My pleasure. So before we get into the meat of the interview, Mark, tell us a little bit about your journey, because I see here you're a former UCLA psychiatrist. You have a medical degree. You've trained corporations and governments around the world. You know, how did your life trajectory get on this path? Well, I'll share something that I think entrepreneurs listening in might relate to and hopefully feel less alone with. Um, uh, On my wake-up call, I interview influencers about what woke them up and then the wake-up calls, uh, what woke them up to what most matters to them. And if you go to my wake-up call on iTunes, uh, they're all wonderful, but I'll direct your attention to one with a fellow named Jay Reed. And Jay Reed is a serial entrepreneur, mm. and he has a TEDx talk called The Most Important Conversation You Can Ever Have with Your Teenager. And in that, he's an entrepreneur, and he talks about how a year ago he was in Mexico with his wife, celebrating just how wonderful their life was going and his business was going well. And while he's with his wife and he shows a picture of the beach while he's giving the TEDx talk and and, and he's all upbeat and he said, while I'm there having dinner with my wife, I get a text from my son, Ryan. And the text said, um, uh, don't blame yourself. I'm so sorry. Goodbye. And so Jay started screaming, uh, you know, and he called his mother-in-law who was staying in the home and he said, go find Ryan. And she ran around the house and she kept looking and she went up into the attic and he had hung himself. Uh. And he left two notes. One was, here are the passwords to my technology. And the second one was, tell my story. And so that was a wake up call for Jay. And he's now doing a movie called Tell My Story. Uh. But, but during the interview, what was interesting is he pointed out something that I knew to be true, and I think it's true of me. Mm. He said about a third of entrepreneurs uh, have had serious 
depression and even suicidal thoughts. Uh-huh. And he said uh, he believes that those entrepreneurs don't get those entrepreneurs don't get depressed when their business fails. He says those entrepreneurs are already probably bipolar, a little bit manic. That's why they became entrepreneurs. Uh, but they become entrepreneurs to get away from their depression. Mm. So it's not the business failing for those entrepreneurs. It's that they needed to become entrepreneurs because uh, because they couldn't stand the pain of just you know feeling different than other people. And you know, and when you feel different than other people, and people are telling you, "What are you doing that for? You should do something more secure." Or other mm. people are just telling you. Uh, you'll never, uh, you'll never succeed. And you're surrounded by all those people who are basically just trying to reassure themselves that they're doing the right thing by not being entrepreneurs. It can really break your spirit. Uh And I realized when he said that, that it applied to me because I'm a medical doctor, but one of my most, I guess probably my most, uh, thing, I, I, I guess my one of my biggest accomplishments personally is I dropped out of medical school twice and finished. Wow. And I dropped out because I think I had untreated depression. Huh. And so the first time I dropped out, I, I didn't go to work in some laboratory. I worked in some blue collar jobs. I think it was pretty physical. Uh, and I dropped out because I was highlighting all the books and I, uh, I was reading them, but I couldn't hold on to the information. Huh. And when I worked in these blue-collar physical jobs, my mind came back at that level. I went back to medical school, and then in three months, it happened again. And I want, and miraculously, I was passing everything, and I wanted to drop out. I sought to drop out again, and I met with the head of the medical school who cares about funding, and uh, and and he sent me over to the dean of students because. I think what the the head of the medical school was thinking about me, and I've only realized this recently, and he's dead, but I've been apologizing to him in talks that I give because it may be that he was the one who saved my life because Mm. he looked looked at me when he met with me, and and, and if I put myself in his shoes, he was probably thinking, you know, this guy has dropped out once. He was probably depressed. He's dropping out again. We need to, we need to cut our losses because we're losing matching funds. Mm. But I don't, I don't want him to kill himself. So he referred me to the dean of students who cares about who cares about students, not about money. Mm-hmm. And I think the dean of students changed my life because I think I was pretty low. I don't know if I was suicidal or whatever, but I was pretty low. And I met with the dean of students, and he showed me the letter uh, from the the dean of the school. Uh, that I was going to be asked to withdraw. And when I asked the dean of students, what does this mean? He said, well, you've been kicked out. And what happened, Chi, is uh, uh, I, I kind of collapsed in my gut. It was almost like a gunshot wound. Uh-huh. And uh, because I came from a background that you're only worth something if you're doing something and you're productive. And I think I'd reached a point where my, my mind wasn't working. Uh-huh. So I wasn't I wasn't worth anything. And so, and I came from a background where my, you know, my parents were hardworking and, and I think they had that thing is, uh, you know, you're only worth something if you're productive. And I think when he said that to me, I just kind of, it's, it's, it's almost, as I said, it's almost like a gunshot wound. Uh, 
And he looked at me and he said, he said, Mark, you didn't screw up, meaning you passing all your classes, but you are screwed up. And I started to cry because of his compassion. And he said, but if you don't, uh, he said, but uh, he said, but even if you don't get unscrewed up, even if you don't become a doctor, even if you don't do anything the rest of your life, I'd be proud to know you because you have goodness in you that we don't grade in medical school. We should, but we don't. And you have no idea how much the world needs that goodness. And you won't know it till you're 35, but you're going to make it till you're 35 and you deserve to be on this planet and you're going to let me help you. So it changed everything. It flipped the switch inside me, and he stood up. Uh, he arranged an appeal, and I stood up for myself, and I guess other people saw that goodness in me, and they gave me another, another leave of absence. And I, that's when I discovered psychiatry. Uh, I, I went out uh, uh, and stayed in Kansas because I, I grew up in Boston, went to school in California, and I just wanted to get away from everybody telling me what to do in my head. Yeah. And I discovered I had some knack at reaching people, you know, who were really in a dark place. So I came back to medical school knowing that that's what I was going to become. Mm. And, uh, but it's interesting, Chi, because uh, I, I joke with myself saying, you know, you should have stayed out of medical school because it turns out that I'm a creative. <laughs> and uh, no, and I've, written, I've written seven books. Uh, I speak around the world, I write all around the world, I have a podcast, um, and uh, so it, it turns out I'm a creative. On the other hand, I'm glad I finished medical school in psychiatry because it gives me a degree in credibility that now my personal mission is, is preventing suicide. So it, give, it gives me a credibility that if I didn't have that degree, I wouldn't have. Um, but I hope that people listening in can get something from what I just said, because uh, uh, often what's happening is you can't do anything other than become an entrepreneur, because it feels like the world around you is telling you you're wrong. Mm -hmm. Why do you have to be different? And then then you have an idea uh, and you run after that idea. And in most cases, it fails. If you talk to most entrepreneurs, they will mention that they had more failures than winning. So the key is how do you keep going when you fail, especially when everybody told you you would fail and then you fail, the sense of humiliation, the sense of embarrassment is so huge, you can understand why entrepreneurs, many entrepreneurs will get depressed and even suicidal. Yes. But you have to keep going. because uh, because you're more likely to fail than succeed. The real challenge is how to learn from the failures as opposed to getting depressed. And that is not easy. And uh, that's why it's important to be around other entrepreneurs because uh, and, and, and entrepreneurs where you have each other's back, where you can trust each other, where you can share some of the, the failures you've had and the oh. humiliation you've had because you'll, you'll feel less alone and you'll be supportive of each other. Yeah. 
so so I I'm hoping that some of your listeners can relate to what I've talked about. Yeah. So how do you succeed as an entrepreneur, and and what's this thing about a calling? Um, see, uh, and they will talk about when you're an entrepreneur. You know, it's you have to work in your business to get it to a certain level. Yeah. And and sometimes you stay too much working in your business, and then they say you need to work on your business. Uh-huh. And I think working on your business means really, really getting a sense of the marketplace. And something if the if people who are listening don't know about it, I really would encourage them to explore this uh, this concept of design thinking. So design thinking was first originated by uh, David Kelly from IDEO. It's a design company, and also it's big at the Stanford uh, Design School. And when I learned about it, and I think the entrepreneurs listening in will say, oh, my God, that's how I think. So when I learned about it, it was – and it was only in the past four or five years, I said, this is how I've lived my life. I just didn't know it. So let me go over what the steps are, but you, sure. can, you, know, you can just you can just find it. There's videos, YouTube's. So the steps of design thinking, and this is really important as an entrepreneur, is you need to empathize with your market. And mm-hmm. empathize meaning identify the market, and you have to drill down with what they really need and want, not what you think they should need and want. And so you you really have to almost let go of anything you're doing or thinking and drill in to your market. So I actually wrote a blog. I I, I have I have over 1,200 published articles and blogs, and I wrote one called "Design Thinking Suicide Prevention" because mm-hmm. that's what I became for 20. Uh, after that, dean of students reached into me and saved me. I had to pay it forward, and I still am, which is you got to find other people who are ready to give up. And, and if they're good people, you just you just grab them by the neck and say, I'm not letting go of you. Mm. And uh, so uh, I, when in my design thinking suicide prevention article, when I empathized into what's going on in suicidal people – what I came up with is they feel despair, and if you break the word despair into D-E-S-P-A-I-R, they feel unpaired, despair, with reasons to live. They feel hopeless, without hope, helpless, powerless, useless, worthless, meaningless. And when all of, when they're feeling all of those things, they feel life is pointless. Mm-hmm. And, and so they pair with death to take the pain away and they feel all alone in that. So, th- so the first step is empathizing. What are they feeling? And I thought, Oh, I think they're all feeling despair. And then the second step I believe is problem identification. And so the problem was, okay, if they're feeling unpaired with the reasons to live and they're pairing with death for relief, they need to be paired with, uh-huh. uh, so that was my problem definition. If if they can feel paired with and less alone when they're in the dark night of their soul, that could be helpful. And then the third step is uh, – so this problem definition. The third step is ideation. And so I began to think of what would be a way to go and help them feel paired with something other than death. And what I realized – 
that was, and it's something that I've been doing, and I was a suicide specialist for 20 years, and none of my patients killed themselves, is I, I developed something called empathic, uh, excuse me, interventional empathy, which means that instead of throwing solutions and treatments and programs at them when they were shut down uh, and not having the energy to try anything, uh, I abandoned throwing anything at them, and instead I went in, I started, I learned how to listen into their deepest, darkest pain, and what I'm doing now around the world, and I've changed, and I've changed my LinkedIn profile to something called Scaling Compassion, yes. yeah. humanizing the, work wor- the workplace and the world one conversation at a time, and so what I'm teaching the world, whoever wants to hear it is how do you listen into people in a way in in when you look into their eyes and you know they're having problems if you can listen for hurt fear pain and anger it's always there and if you let go of any agenda that you're trying to sell them if you let go of anything other than trying to lessen hurt fear pain or anger and you look into their eyes they see you looking for that It's astounding. And what happens is you can look them in the eye because a lot of times we can't look customers in the eye because we're trying to sell them something that's more about us than them. And so we're afraid they're seeing that we're trying to maneuver or sell or manipulate them to buy our stuff. And, And often it's very difficult to look into someone's eyes when you know down deep that you actually care more about being successful than you care about the customer. True. True. You know, but when you but when you look into their eyes, and geez, so many people are feeling this. Uh, if you look for hurt, hurt, fear, uh, pain, and anger, it's always there, and it's a different way of looking. But what happens is you can look them directly in the eye because you're not. It's totally serving them. And and what I am teaching people is if you meet with someone or you you have a friend that's having a hard time. And if you just look into their eyes and you're listening for any of those four things, you can look really deeply and they're going to say, what are you looking at? And you say, uh, uh, you know, I know you're having a hard time and I'm, I'm looking for the hurt, fear, pain and anger. Which one of those? Mm. And what will happen is they'll, 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 their eyes will blink slightly and they'll water up and, and they'll start to talk about it. And the key is, uh, and it takes practice, but the key is not to do that and then get nervous and open, up. and open up and then jump in and say, well, you're going to be okay. You're mm-hmm. a strong person. You're blah. Because what will happen is they will feel that you open them up and now you just left them alone. Mm. So, so it takes a little practice. And one of the first breakthroughs, if you do this with people you care about, is when they start to tear up, don't see that as, oh, my God, they're feeling upset. No, they're feeling relief. They're crying because they're, you're, getting, you're helping them feel less alone, and they're feeling relief. So it takes practice, but, but once you see that that's what's happening, I mean, a lot of people will say to me, how could you have been a suicide specialist for – so many years, didn't it? Didn't it depress you? Uh-huh. And I'd say it never depressed me 
it's it sometimes exhausted me but i said people were trusting me with things they didn't trust anybody with including themselves and so they were giving me the gift of their trust and and uh uh just like i did with the dean you know uh, uh in fact, if the dean had opened me up and said, you know, if I can help you, uh, give me a call, I never would have called him, and I'm not sure I would be here today. Yeah. But instead, he said, you're going you're gonna to let me help you. So, so he opened up, and he stepped in, and, and he arranged an appeal. I mean, you know, so that changed everything. Yeah. Awesome. And Mark, what do you think is causing the rise in despair in recent years, and how is it tied to the opioid crisis? Well, I think what's happening, and this will make people chuckle who are listening, some will like it, and some will, some will click off. I wrote an uh, article recently called Zuckerberg, Musk, Bezos, Stop Killing Us, mm. Revenge of the Nerds 2.0. And what it was about as I said, that years ago, you know, way before you were born, Chi, years ago, compassion, tenderness, patience, lovemaking, uh, which, which are all mediated by something called oxytocin. Uh-huh. That's the bonding hormone. That led to pleasure, which is mediated by dopamine. Yeah. And, and, but what's happened is and that's why I call it the Revenge of the Nerds 2.0, is that many technologists, uh, when they were younger, they couldn't connect to people. No one would date them. They wouldn't date others. But they loved Radio Shack. They loved technology. <laughs> they were excited by it. They never took showers. If you find out about Steve Jobs, he never showered, but he loved technology. And so what's happened is these people who couldn't get a date – addicted the world to adrenaline Mm. and what's happened is adrenaline is excitement it's power it's not closeness and i think what's happened now is adrenaline leads to dopamine and oxytocin has withered because it's too slow to listen to someone else's feelings yeah let go of your agenda to let go of what you're you're, what you're driving uh, to get through it's too slow. It's too boring. And I think what happens, getting back to the opiate thing, is that when people, the only thing more powerful than an adrenaline rush is an adrenaline crash. And when people start to crash off it, they need comfort. And that's something they don't know how to get. Not getting it from other people because other people are too much in a rush. And so they're just looking for something to literally take the psychological and emotional and physical pain away, and opiates do that. So how do we get back that intimacy, that lost art of being more intimate and more emotional and more open with people? Is it we all put our smartphones down and our devices, do we all get off the internet? Because I know a lot of people will say, hey, you know what? The, the world has moved forward and now the only way to get a date is to go on Tinder or Facebook and swipe and meet somebody and then go from there. But you find that that also has made it 
become kind of like fast food dating. Well, okay, if you don't like this person on the first date, fine. You can just go and order another person. And then you find that you're not even giving relationships time to organically build up that relationship. Because it doesn't happen, like the movies say, instantly. You know, it'll take a while. And I know back in the day, well, in my parents' day, you know, it took it took, it took some time before at least one day, two days, three days, four days before you now say, okay, this guy is probably not the right one. But now you have almost 30 seconds on Instagram or Tinder or whatever. And so you lose that art of being able to forge those emotional bonds and build that oxytocin. Yeah, I'll tell you, someone someone who was interviewing me told me it's even gotten worse. Oh. <laughs> someone, told me, someone told me that there is, a, and you may know about this, I didn't, that there's a lot of people having sex on the internet with people they never meet. In other words, you know, it's probably mutual masturbation and whatever. Mm, but wow. they don't even—they don't even connect with each other at all. They—they—they uh, uh, they get off because they're each sharing uh, things that excite each other, and they never even meet each other. Wow. So it's gotten really worse. So here's something I'd like your listeners to try, and I'd like you to try, and I want you to get back to me and uh, okay, let me know. And I learned this from a friend of mine, and I don't do it enough, but every time I do it, it just, it makes me feel better in ways that almost nothing else does. Uh, And so if you're listening, I want you to try this for a week. Every day, when you see one of the invisible functionaries in the world, you know, people that are people, but they're treated like a function, like TSA uh, agents or a... You know, when you go to the airport or cashiers uh, or, or uh, I don't know, police officer, anyone. But, mm-hmm. but these people who are just treated like functions, once a day, uh, say, if you see one of them at a cashier, just say, what made you smile today? Mm-hmm. And it's phenomenal because what happens, and I just did that today uh, at, you know, one of the uh, local supermarkets and... Uh, and the cashier was there. Now, sometimes they'll be annoyed, you know, how dare you? But my batting average is pretty high. When you say it sincerely, what made you smile today? And I just I just left a uh, a, a market, uh, and the cashier looked at me, and she smiled, and she said, seeing you, sweetie. <laughs> um, I did it uh, a couple of days ago at a McDonald's when I was getting a coffee. I did the same thing with the cashier. And she said the same thing, seeing you, sweetie. And what was weird is, you know, I sat down to drink my coffee. And when there were no other customers, she just kept looking at me and smiling. And this is why it helps. Mm. When you do it uh, and the other person answers, they're, they're, you're, you're giving them a second moment of being grateful about something in their life. Mm. And when they say it, they relive it. And when you're doing it to help them relive it, they become grateful to you. But where's the, the benefit to you and me is it gives you a break from being self-absorbed, self-centered, only focused on yourself. And it can cause you to feel, you know, I made the world a little happier today. Huh. And, and it really is a great way to take away some of our self-absorption, our narcissism. And I would just ask people who are listening in to just try it for a week. And again, there may be some people who are just so angry, you know, that they uh, uh, they get sarcastic. But, you know, don't don't let that 
change your mind. But let me ask you, Chi, what made you smile today? Oh, what made me smile? Well, before we we spoke, I fried some plantains and eggs, which is a traditional Nigerian breakfast, and I rarely get to do that. So that made me smile. I, I You know... I can taste it as you're saying it. <laughs> you know, I can see – we're on audio. I can see you smiling yeah. because you said a bunch of things, so you got to re-enjoy it. You said, you know, I don't do that that often. It's a tr- traditional kind of thing. I've moved away from my country, but I did something that gave me memories, just the aroma of it, of my mm-hmm. country. Yeah. Uh, something that I don't often do, and it was – it connected me to my history, my past, plus it tasted good. Yeah. Yeah. True? Yes, exactly true. So that's what I would say to people. Um, uh, uh, also, if you like a taste of that, um, uh, not not food you made, but a taste of seeing the response you get when you ask people what made you smile today, uh, and, and you want more of that, you know, my I've changed my whole profile at LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. And it's now called Scaling Compassion, Humanizing the Workplace and the World One Conversation at a Time. Okay. And actually, if you do that, what made you smile today, you've, you've helped humanize. You took someone who was treated like an appliance, yeah, like a function, and you treated them as a person. Yeah. You know, and they often feel invisible. Yes. Well, you, you, you made a nobody feel like a somebody. Somebody, yeah. So, uh, uh, so if you like the feeling of that, because I'm trying to turn my mission of scaling compassion into a movement, because wherever I look now, now again, I, I don't look at the world through entrepreneurs' eyes. I look at it through compassion eyes, and all I see, all I see is hurt, fear, pain, and anger. Yeah. It's just everywhere. Yeah. And and compassion, uh, and I hadn't thought about it, but when you say to someone, what made you smile today, that's pretty compassionate. Yes, that's true. Now, I want to ask you a question on the other coin of things. We've spoken about empathy and emotions, but I want to find out from your perspective, what does, um, and I don't want to use the word religion, but let's call it spirituality, so faith, belief in God. So what does faith or the belief in a higher power and authority, what does that play when it comes to someone feeling or going through suicidal thoughts and suicidal um, actions? Is, 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 there, is there a way that being anchored to a spiritual center can help avoid those feelings or even help to heal that person? Yeah, uh, uh, totally. And, and I'll, uh, you know, I, I'm also interested in reducing suicide in veterans. Mm. And so, something that I've observed in veterans, uh, how they plummet and become suicidal, and, and I'll address the spirituality in, in, in a little bit. But what happens is they're going on in life. They, you know, when we feel stress, we can still focus on our goals. But if the stress uh, builds, it crosses over into distress. And when we're in distress, we focus on relieving the distress. And it's tough to hold on to our goals. And when we do that, we start to feel anxious, depressed, uh, sometimes discouraged. And if it keeps building up and there's no relief, if you're a veteran, 
you begin to feel like you're not in control. Uh-huh. That no matter what you do to make it better, it's not happening. And there's and and in your mind, if you go, if you're a veteran or in the military, and you go from, and, and I'm sure entrepreneurs will relate to this, when you go, when you feel not in control, you'll feel out of control. And when you feel out of control, there's a point at which you feel like you're coming unglued, you're losing your mind, you're going crazy. Mm-hmm. And the ne- next step, when you feel like you're totally out of control, you literally feel, it's like my mind is shattering. My mind's falling apart. And for veterans, when they get to that point and they feel their mind is shattering, the next step is my mind's going to fragment. And that's when they look down the barrel of a gun and they start to cry and they say, God, I don't want to kill myself, but I can't take it anymore. And so what happens is God, spirituality, uh, something non-human, higher power, becomes something you can surrender to. Oh. And so what what does surrendering mean? It means being able to let go of the rigidity in your mind, which is no longer working for you. See, because when you start to fall apart, when the goal that you were chasing suddenly goes away, uh-huh. literally you're, you're the the three functional parts of your brain, your thinking part, your emotional part, and your fight or flight part, they start to decouple. It's like a Rubik's cube that suddenly uh, twists in so many ways. And when it starts to decouple, that's when you start to fall apart and you feel like you're never going to come back together again. And really what's happening is uh, the goal you were chasing or the future you were chasing that was defining you is suddenly taken away. So that's the thing that was orienting your mind, your thinking, your feeling, and your actions. And the point is, if you can just surrender, your mind will readjust like a Rubik's cube, that's, oh. uh, and it will and it will refine itself with the next goal. Mm-hmm. But, but the point is, when you're plummeting, and that future is gone, and you don't have yet that uh, that uh, resilience, you feel that you're, you're literally coming unglued and that's, but if you can surrender and a lot of times you can't do that with people because people let us down. People say they'll, they have our back and then they've gone or they'll be there for us. And, but then if we try to reach them, they're busy. And so I think spirituality, God, religion is a place that you can surrender into and as I said, for veterans, they start to cry because by, by connecting with God in their mind, they fell apart, they let go, they fell apart, but they didn't fragment or shatter. Uh-huh. And so what happens is many of them will just fixate on that, and, and you can say, what got you through? And you'll see this with a lot of athletes uh, who've had rough times. And many of them will say, my faith. Mm. Does that make any sense? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. And as we start to wind down the show, Mark, as you were telling that story, um, I remember an incident that happened. This was maybe earlier this month. So I went to the dentist and just to get a quick cleanup. 
And the lady that was taking my details and everything, she asked me for my date of birth. I told her, I told her the month, and then she got a little sad. And I said, oh, why, why are you sad? She said, oh, that, you know, you're born in September. September is the month that um, a year ago my son killed himself. So she mm. feels bad about, you know, here in September. And I, I, and, I, and I honestly didn't know what to say. I just said, oh, I'm very sorry about that. But, um, you know, as, as much as we will all try to help share empathy and compassion and help people avoid going, going to that point of, you know, committing suicide and killing themselves and going, there are some people where, you know, there's no intervention that has happened and they are now left without their loved ones. So how can we that are trying to scale empathy now bring comfort to those who have lost their loved ones or, you know, try and help them maintain some some sense of maybe normalcy or just um, recovery? Because I, 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 since she mentioned it, I'm thinking, okay, I've set up my alarm that I'm going to send her flowers and chocolate or something nice in September just so that she doesn't feel bad. I've only, I only met her the one time, but it's on my heart. So I'm asking you, how can we share comfort and help those people that are going through that um, process heal. Okay, so I'll give you a story. Uh, one of my uh, one of my patients was a a mother, and her only child daughter was shotgunned to death. In fact, the daughter's head ended up in a tree, oh. and she was shotgunned by an ex boyfriend. And the uh, and the uh, the murderer ran to Canada. And uh, because this was, it happened in a state in uh, in the states where they had where they had capital punishment, they had execution, and so there was a whole campaign because they wanted to extradite the guy from Canada back to this state, but Canada wouldn't do it because they didn't want to extradite to a state in which he was going to be executed. Mm. And so there was a campaign, and this is many years ago, and I think on one of the um, main Canadian shows, there was a campaign about this. To make a long story short, uh, some of the agents from Canada and the FBI made a deal, and, uh, and they, uh, and they, and they uh, gave them over to the FBI, uh, I think, at Niagara Falls. And so, and so seeing her, nothing helped. And then I said – you know, no matter what I say, you're going to think it's easy for you to say you didn't lose your child. Yeah. And so what I did do is I got her involved with a group called Parents of Murdered Children. And these are parents, mostly mothers, who get together because the pain is so high and nobody other than another parent of a murdered child understands it. And, you know, and she... You know, she didn't want to go, and uh, but then I got her going. I even attended a few of the meetings. It's, it's, and I'll tell you, it's one of the one, one of the most anguished group of people because they share uh, what the murder was about, and then they share what was the status of bringing the killer to justice. Mm-hmm. But what happened is some of the newer mothers who had lost their children started looking at her as a mother. Uh. And so she became a mother figure to them and uh, and she found a purpose and, you know, and she saw the pain in their eyes and she was able to respond to it. And so uh, uh, and so uh, she was able to. So what I would say 
if you're going back to that mother, you could say, you know, I've been thinking about it. And what I would do, Chi, is I would find a support group for parents of children who have uh, died by suicide. Okay. You can reach out to hospitals or, and just find one or find a couple. And I would say to her, uh, you know, I couldn't get the pain you were feeling out of my head. Mm. And I and I, I checked into these things. And if you're not attending one, uh, here are some. Uh, pick one that's close to where you live. And I'd like you to go there. And if you're hesitant, I'm going to drive you. Oh. I'll tell you, it'll make your day, Chi. You'll just say, you'll look back in the year and say, that was the kindest thing I did the whole year. And what will happen is she'll find other people who she'll listen to because she can't say to them, it's easy for you to say you've never lost a child. Uh. And then I got an insight. I think it may have been from that mother, but but I, I use it with people dealing with failures or divorce or cancer or whatever. And I use the model of the rings of a tree because the rings of a tree, each ring is a year. Yes. And 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 and, and, and if you looked at a synthetic tree where all the rings are symmetric, it looks it looks boring. Mm-hmm. But if you look at a tree that's been through fires and, and floods, the tree has character. And so uh, she may have been the one who told me about this. But the idea is. Uh, you need to build new memories to dilute this memory. Okay. Because, if, if, because if you stay frozen in that memory like a broken record, it becomes like the end of your life psychologically. Yeah. But, uh, but if you build new memories, and you build new memories by actions taken, not thoughts thought, and so maybe several years later, you'll look back and you'll say, yeah, I lost my daughter, but boy, I was able to bring comfort to you know, three or four disadvantaged moms, and I think I changed their life. Or, gee, I started a program. Uh, so the, the key is to be able to uh, take action to build new memories. Mm-hmm. But what you need when you're hurting so much, you need to feel less alone. Yes. And you need to be around people uh, who, when they when you share what you share and they share what they share, you, you can't discount what they're saying. Yeah. Does that make sense? Makes perfect sense. And I just wrote that down. So I'll track her down and um, we'll do that next month. It's just a week away. So uh, in June, I'm going to reach out to her again and see if I can get her to go or even go with her if she needs to. But uh, thank yeah. you for sharing that. That's uh, very useful and helpful. It's, ju- it's just been on my mind and our discussion just brought it up. So that I was like, okay. Well, also, you might want to go with her because as I flash back to the dean of students, Mm -hmm. if he had said, uh, uh, if I can be of help, call me, uh, I would have gone back to my apartment and I probably wouldn't have called him. But when he said, you're going to let me help you, Mm -hmm. and he said it so strongly and lovingly, I couldn't refuse it. Awesome, awesome. Now, Mark, I know we've spent way longer than I initially planned, and I really want to thank you for coming to share your story and to teach us more about this. But before I let you go, um, tell us a little bit more about, you know, what you're currently doing, how people can reach out to you and connect with you, how you're scaling empathy. Do you have a new course, a new book, uh, a special coming out, anything? Okay, so I am the... 
a co-creator and the moderator of a documentary called Stay Alive. It's available at Amazon Prime. Um, and, uh, and I interview a fellow named Kevin Hines, who jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge and survived. Recently, yes. he was one of CNN's champions for change. And he's a force of nature. He, he speaks 200 days a year all around the world, talked about his journey and and uh, and he's just amazing, and it was a privilege to be able to spend that time with him. So I interviewed him and a Japanese pop singer, a female, who's a suicide prevention advocate. And so if people uh, check out Stay Alive uh, at Amazon Prime, that would be great. Uh, what I'm also doing is bringing that out into the community, to schools, to colleges, the documentary, and then having doing a QA. and uh, my, my latest push, along with scaling compassion, is when I give talks, uh, one of my books, Just Listen, became the top book on listening in the world. It's in 22 yes. languages. And I spoke in Russia, in Moscow, to the Russian Federation, to managers about how you can get better results by listening to your workers as opposed to trying to control them mm -hmm. and it went so and they made a highlight really you can see if you look up goulston g-o-u-l-s-t-o-n moscow youtube you'll see the three minute video that they made for me and i'm going back they're, they're bringing me back this october oh. and uh but one of the things i'm wanting to do is whenever i speak about communication uh whenever i give or generally whenever i give a talk uh, i will ask the audience Raise your hand if any of you have known of someone who killed themselves. And 80 to 90% of the room raises their hand. And you can feel the whole room gets very quiet. And I've just and then it gets very awkward. And what I realized is they get quiet because they immediately think of the person they remember who killed themselves. Then they start to feel a combination of guilt and shame. Geez, could I have done more? Could I have called them back? And then the third thing, which they want to run away from, is they f they feel helpless or powerless. And one of the reasons they didn't go back to that person is because they felt helpless and powerless. Well, our whole approach in both stay alive and my whole approach in scaling compassion is uh, I have figured out how to teach other people to reach into people. Here are the steps to follow. Here are the tactics. Here are the tools. Because I think a lot of people would like to help the people in their lives that they're worried about. They just don't know how to. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what I'm wanting to do, and if you're, you're, you or your listeners can help, uh, I want to speak at conferences, big business conferences, when they – and they'll often bring in someone who's not talking about the technology or whatever. They'll bring an inspirational speaker. Mm -hmm. And it's going to take a courageous event planner because it's a dark subject. But when you get everyone in an audience to raise their hand and remember someone, I, I think it, hum it humanizes all of them. And plus, they're going to walk away with actual tips and tactics that they can use to help other people that might be feeling depressed or suicidal, including themselves. So that's what I'm looking for. Any, and any of your listeners can uh, introduce me to that. That would be great. Okay. In, ter in terms of contacting me, I do have a website called markgoulston.com. 
I'll probably be changing it as I move into the scaling compassion thing. Uh, I, I have a podcast called My Wake Up Call, where which I talked about earlier mm-hmm. with entrepreneur. So you can find that on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. And I, my seven books are available at Amazon or Barnes and Noble. And uh, oh, plus here's the final thing: I have five hundred and sixty thousand Twitter followers, and I have a permanently a permanent tweet at the top of it, which is, have you ever known of someone or known someone uh, who killed themselves? And it has 2.4 million impressions and over 1,500 comments. And many of the comments are people just listing all the people they know who have killed themselves. And it's chilling, but it's saving lives because it's helping people who are tormented by it to feel less alone. Okay. Awesome. And I'll put that in the show notes as well as share it widely so that people know about it. Mark, thanks a lot for coming to to teach us a lot more about, you know, better mental health, you know, sharing your story, helping people with um, suicidal thoughts and also sharing and scaling compassion for people that have experienced um, these events. I truly appreciate you taking the time to do this today. Well, thank you for having me on, and, and and I know it's probably a different topic than what you cover, and and I want to thank you, any of your listeners who listen to this to thank you for hearing Chi and me out on this topic, and because uh, you know, we're all in this together. Yeah, great. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in once again to the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast. If you love the way we handle this topic of mental health and suicide, please go to Mark's podcast, that's My Wake Up Call, wherever you listen to your podcast, and leave a review and a comment, and let them know that you found the episode exciting and intriguing and would love to learn more. I really would appreciate it because these are the topics we'd like to get out there so that we know that it's not just about building a business, but it's about building a holistic wealth person so go to markgolston.com you'll be able to find his website and then from there you go to his podcast and then leave a review and a comment and tell him how wonderful you found the discussion all right guys thanks for listening and as always i'll see you next time on another episode of the bulletproof entrepreneur podcast